Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can think of, has its own history, like schadenfreude, spots and marmalade. Oh, I really, 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 really want to do uh, the history of schadenfreude. Uh, because I, this week I was teaching the history of emotions uh, and looking at the work of the brilliant Tiffany Watt-Smith, uh, who's director of the Centre of History of Emotions at Queen Mary University, London. And she's written a brilliant book by the Wellcome Trust uh, called Schadenfreude, The Joy of Another's Misfortune. And Sam, this will so appeal to you. Get the get these uh, chapter headings. So there is a chapter on accidents. We know about accidents. There's a chapter on glory, one on justice. You'll love this one. One titled The Smug. Another <laughs> on love, envy, mutiny and power. Mm. I've actually bought my wife a copy of this for Christmas. I think she I think she'll love it. Sort of really interesting cultural history. However, <laughs> let's uh, hope she's it, not listening to this otherwise. Let's hope she's not listening to this. No. No, 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 Julia, if you're listening, um <laughs> please ignore all that. Yeah, the last minute will be fine. Anyway, yes, or, here we go. Crosses, mosses and bosses, and I'm struggling here, posses, uh, posses, molasses and flosses. Uh, I think we should do all of those. The history of bosses, I think, would be quite good. But we digress in a a whimsical and festive spirit because for what follows, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Now, who knew, for example, Sam, who knew... But the history of lightning, I've been visiting our back catalogue again, is in fact all about Nelson, Dickensian ghosts. It's about lightning flash links between American independence, superstitious English sailors, Protestant winds, and would you believe it, Nazi PE kits. Or (laughs) that the history of the party um, is brilliant, but it's all about garden parties and peripatetic English monarchs. It's about vomiting ladies of the court of James I. It's about the myth of the Roman vomitorium. It's about Edvard Munch and wallflowers and bacchanalian excess, yelling at cider trees in English orchards. It's about Keith Richards and his TV set. It's about Keith Moon and his exploding toilet. It's about Aerosmith and their chainsaw. And of course, it's about Peter the Great and his wheelbarrow. The much good story. <clears throat> Go back and listen to that excellent episode of Histories of the Unexpected. <laughs> well, you're probably wondering who's doing the talking. Let me just say that if history was a lost whaling ship stuck in the ice of the past, with its human crew jabbering in a frenzy of cold and scurvy, this man would be its rescuer, prepared to walk over a thousand miles across the waste of the present, experiencing unimaginable hardship with dodgy coffees in archives all over the world, as he is guided and carried on his way across the Arctic waste by his loyal reindeer of research. It is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Did you say dodgy coffee or dodgy yes. copy? Coffee. Dodgy coffee. There's something, there's nothing I can abide less than dodgy coffee. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I put it in. It'd be awful. And, of course, you're probably wondering who the man not sitting opposite me is because we're socially distancing during these grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say, if he were a historical figure connected to reindeer, he'd only be Clement Seymour himself, author of The Night Before Christmas, that great American work that depicts Santa Claus's reindeer and, in fact, names them. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. 
How would you like that, being the inventor of Father Christmas's reindeer? I like it very much. Good. I thought it was very clever. Well done. Good. Oh, bless you. We are, um, this is part two of our reindeer special for Christmas. We enjoyed it so much. There was so, so many great depths of research we can go into with the history of reindeer. We've decided to carry it on over two episodes. So we are back with some more reindeer facts. We talked a little bit in the first one about reindeer as a valuable commodity, um, as a status symbol. James talked about the history of Father Christmas's rainbow. All sorts of, of, of wonderful Ra- Ra- things there. Father Christmas's reindeer. Reindeer, what did I say? Rainbow. rainbow. No, no, Father Christmas didn't have a rainbow. His reindeer, his rainbow reindeer. Um, uh, I talked a bit about trapping reindeer, but now we're going to go in some different directions to help you understand all the different ways you can think about reindeer. Um, I'm going to start by carrying on about Svalbard. I talked about... Um, well, you, you might have heard of Svalbard if you are watching Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. There's Ooh, a lot of it going that. on in, in the Svalbard. It's an archipelago off the north coast of Norway. And it's a fantastic resource for understanding uh, the history of human interaction with reindeer. Particularly, there's been some wonderful archaeological work there, which sits alongside... Um, historical sources from the 17th and the 18th century, uh, particularly in the 18th century, a Russian hunting camp. And the 17th century, so 100 years before, a Dutch whaling camp. And um, some really wonderful work has been done there comparing the archaeological discoveries, the resources that were used there. So uh, what you need to know here is that um, from the beginning of the 18th century into the middle of the 19th century. So 150 years, Russians organised yearly hunting expeditions to Spitsbergen on Svalbard. And lots of those expeditions involve wintering on the archipelago. Um, you've got historical sources mention how the Russians exploit a huge variety of animals there, walrus, polar fox, polar bear, birds and seals. And there have been some excavations near Kokorineset, um, and it's shown that actually reindeer was by far the largest part of the bones that were discovered. A total of 1,281 fragments of reindeer bone were identified there, um, indicating a very intensive use of the animals in the camp, but also that the hunters um, were processing the entire animal, which is a really important uh, way of understanding just how they were how they were interacting with the wildlife there. Um, there's a Russian folklorist. This is the, sorry. The wonderful thing about this is the is the the the, um, the way that the historical sources work with the archaeology. Um, Charitonov he writes in 1851 on the activities of Russian hunters, particularly at Spitsbergen, and he explains that hunting reindeer is actually the first thing they did on arrival at the base of their camp. It was so important to them, so important to their diet, um, that actually what they're doing is they're going to camps which are known to be frequented by reindeer. Uh, and they were the first people to actually successfully winter regularly every year on a base in Spixberg. And the biggest threat that they face is scurvy. Um, so, you know, being on an island in on northern Norway in the middle of winter is a bit like being in a ship. You, you run out of um, the things you need, run out of vitamins very quickly. So they're suffering from scurvy. They're suffering from a lack of vitamin C. And they cope with this by eating fresh reindeer meat and drinking fresh reindeer blood. And they also have um, stuff called scurvy grass, which uh, which grows on, on the tundra there. As well as evidence for them butchering the animals, there's also evidence of various soaring and smoothing on antlers, showing that the hunters not only used the reindeer for food, but also for making various products um, like tools, um, reindeer uh, needles we, we heard about in the first episode for sewing clothing and other small objects. 
Um, it didn't find just bone and antler, but also pieces of leather, some with bits of reindeer hair still on them. Um, but most of them seem to have been waste fragments from the production of um, shoes in particular, other leather objects. Um, James, I wonder if they were making making gloves. gloves. Yeah, yeah. I bet they were making gloves. They, were. Um, they found a shoe mould. Um, and what's interesting there is that it, it seems to suggest that they're not just making... Um, shoes for themselves but they're already starting to produce the material as traders which they'll then take back to Russia and sell um there's evidence actually of shoes of women and children being found there and of, of the process of making them um so they're processing the skins they're they're butchering the animals they're making stuff and they're doing it all on site um and it's very different to a whaling station. This is the kind of the point about this. 17th century Dutch whaling stations are 100 years before, but nearby. Um, and only 23% of the bone there was actually came from reindeer. And uh, again, this link between the archaeology and the historical sources. So we've got logbooks of these whalers. We know that they used, um, they appreciated birds as a, an addition to their diet much more than reindeer. So birds and fish bone. They didn't eat the whales. Don't think we, they, did, they did that. Maybe they didn't like the whale blubber. They didn't like the, way, the taste of the whale meat being surrounded by it all the time. But what's really interesting is that they, we know that they, um, they brought with them other stuff. So there's a lot of non-indigenous bones, cows and pigs, which were brought there by the Dutch, which were brought there from the Netherlands. Um, so it would have been dried or salted or perhaps smoked. Um, the, all of this helps us understand that actually the Dutch, so century before the Russians, um, they don't have a source of vitamin C in their diet like the Russians did, who successfully managed to overwinter. And the Dutch are bringing food with them. They're doing their hunting of whales and then they're leaving again. And so we know that actually there's kind of the living experience of the Dutch would have been much worse than it would have the Russians because the Russians were suffering from scurvy. And all of that just from an analysis of reindeer bones um, from, this, from the 18th and the 17th century. A wonderful example of how archaeology and history can uh, work together to help us understand a key moment in the past brilliant sam i'm going to take us uh in a it's sort of similar-ish uh direction at the moment uh and and away from the the sort of whimsical musings about father christmas's reindeer and talk about something you know deeply deeply serious uh which is i'm going to take us back sort of fifty thousand years ago um and i'm going to talk about the very dramatic change that happened to the human brain at that point, and the way in which around the world um, humans start creating and they start decorating, they start making jewellery, they start producing imagery. This is when you find cave paintings on walls, you find sculptings, you find carvings. And I think what we're seeing here is an emerging pattern of where human beings are thinking not simply about the practical things, but they're thinking about the way in which the world worked. Our ancestors are thinking about the world around them and its relationship to themselves. And I think this is something that is deeply important. And we can actually access this from a sculpture carved from mammoth tusk found in Montestruc, France, and dating from 11,000 BC. And it is a beautiful carving. I've just emailed you a copy of it, Sam, 
to your uh, your email address. And what you see here is wow. basically two amazing carvings. Um, the first one on the right is is female, and the one at the back is male. You can you can see that by the sort of anatomy, the sort of genitalia of the of the male reindeer. They were found. Um, uh, as two separate pieces, and it wasn't until much later, until it was in the British Museum, that they actually worked that they were supposed to be put together. Like now, the, the, the ultimate jigsaw moment when you suddenly realise these two actually <laughs> fit together. They're yes, so cool exactly. because if there's a sorry to interrupt, James, but if no, there's no. a if there's one physical piece of evidence to suggest that reindeer might fly, it's yes, this. that would be it. They are, but it's they... wonderful. But what they what it is it's but that it's the anatomical observation of reindeer swimming. That's how they would swim in in oh. that manner. And this is this is actually one of the oldest pieces of artwork carved out of bone in any British gallery or museum. Now here is a plug uh, for you. Uh, I came across this because I've been reading uh, A History of the World in a Hundred Objects by the brilliant uh, Neil McGregor, who was director of the British Museum. And I don't know whether you remember, many, many years ago on Radio 4, he did that series called The World in a Hundred Objects, where the sort of little bite-sized little sort of episodes on different objects. uh, And and it basically set set the tradition of doing you know, the world in 100 objects, the Tudors in 100 objects that museums adopted uh, around the country uh, in the United Kingdom and indeed around the world. Um, But I would recommend this as a stocking filler. Uh, It's very good. And it's the kind of book that would be in any of your local book dealers. And it's very important to support our local book dealers uh, at the moment. But um, he's got some fascinating things to say about it. And one of the things, because he's so intricately connected with the uh, museum in which it's kept he knows all about it and in fact he writes that it is alarmingly delicate we keep it in a climate controlled case and hardly ever move it because with any shock it could just crumble to dust so it's 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 bizarrely fragile and we're lucky we're deeply lucky to have it but moving on to sort of look at the sculpture itself i think what's fascinating about it is that it's when we look at it as you say it's it is an artwork it's one reindeer swimming behind another um it's it's a superb work of craftsmanship um you know shaping it out of a mammoth tusk it's very very closely observed the way that they fit into each other is is amazing um and if you notice it you'll notice that they're both animals are shown sort of with their chins down as if they're swimming along. So it so it's a wonderfully sort of streamlined piece and shows you know reindeer swimming in the um you know in in the water just reindeer swimming across rivers. And I think it shows you know it shows also the fact that it survives the fact that it survives in that part of Montestruc in France which would have been during the Ice Age, you know, 13,000 years ago, it would have been, you know, a very different landscape from it is today, rather like present-day Siberia. So you would have had herds of uh, herds of reindeer over that area. Uh, it's also interesting to know that you would have had mammoth there as well. 
So you've got something that you're you're that's observed, and you've got something that is it's carved out of. But also, it shows that for you know the hunter gatherers of the time, reindeer would have been, and I think this is a point that you've been making very eloquently is that it would have been a really important means of survival you would have got everything from it rather like people use you know approach animals head to tail today so you would have done you know then you know you would have had the the antlers would have been you know would have been used and carved the skin would have been used for clothing the meat would have been eaten for sustenance they things would have been turned into tools and weapons so you know so you would you would hunt these reindeer uh, in order to in order to survive, I think what's also interesting is if we think about this in terms of art. So go back to our our larger point about what this represents about art. And in the chapter, um, McGregor quotes uh, an academic from the University of Reading, Professor Stephen Mithen, uh, who characterises this sort of this sort of hunter gatherer world and the interpreting the world through art in the following way. Something happened in the human brain between, say, 50,000 and 100,000 years ago that allowed this fantastic creativity, imagination, artistic ability to emerge. It was probably that different parts of the brain became connected in a new way and so could combine different ways of thinking, including what people know about nature and what they think about making things. This gave them a new capacity to produce pieces of art, but Ice Age conditions were critical as well. It was a very challenging time for people living in harsh, long winters. The need to build up really intense social bonds, the need for ritual, the need for religion, all these related to this flowering of creative art at the time. Part of the art is an overwhelming sense of delight and appreciation and celebration of the natural world. So, that, I mean, that's extraordinary. So it's the way in which... You know, in which from a piece of archaeology, you are able to start thinking about, you know, whole sort of processes of mankind. And if we move on from the artistic as well, if you think about it in terms of craftsmanship, one of the other things is that if you look at the work of craftsmanship, it shows, um, and he argues in this, McGregor argues, four separate stone technologies so ways of carving that we can get from this reindeer sculpture. Um, and he, I quote, At first, the tip of the tusk was severed with a chopping tool. Then the contours of the animal were whittled with a stone knife and scraper. Then the whole thing was polished using a powdered iron oxide mixed with water, probably buffed up with a chamois leather. And finally, the markings on the bodies and details of the eyes were carefully incised with a stone engraving tool. So what we're looking at is actually very complex um, craftsmanship here to deliver this this work of art, which show the the preciseness of it, the skill of the carving. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this book is the way in which McGregor gets experts to commentate on the significance of these objects that he's found. And one of the people that he has you know, been in touch with about this is the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Dr. Rowan Williams. And he is asked to, to sort of pontificate on the fact that what you've got here is an object that is produced in the Ice Age 
with no practical purpose. And what does that mean in a spiritual sense? And here is William's response to it. You can feel that somebody's making this who was projecting themselves with huge imaginative generosity into the world around and saw and felt in their bones that rhythm. In the art of this period, you see human beings trying to enter fully into the flow of life so that they become part of the whole process of animal life that's going on around them in a way which isn't just about managing the animal world or guaranteeing them success in hunting. I think it's more than that. It's really a desire to get inside and almost to be at home in the world at a deeper level. And that's actually a very religious impulse to be at home in the world. We sometimes tend to identify religion with not being at home in the world, as if the real stuff were elsewhere in heaven. And yet if we look at religious origins, at a lot of the mainstream themes in the great world religions, it's the other way round. It's how to live here and now, and how to be part of that flow of life. So, I mean, what an incredible story to sort of describe this sort of simple carving found tens of thousands of years ago in a part of the world that was covered in ice that has survived that is preserved in one of the most amazing museums in the world the British Museum and has this fantastical story to tell not only about art but also about the spiritual and religious life and you know what better way to connect to the Christmas time, the festive season, the holiday season, whatever, however you want to view it, uh, that we're that we're in at the moment. So there we are, Sam. Swimming reindeer. Swimming reindeer, James. I love that. Uh, I'm going to take us to uh, now one of, um, I think, one of the most lovely stories about human interaction with reindeer I've come across and it's actually one of the best and most extraordinary rescue stories from history I'd urge you all to look into this a little bit it really is quite extraordinary it's a bit like the Shackleton um the Shackleton episode in the Antarctic it's actually very difficult to explain what they went through um uh, uh adequately I think but this is the overland relief expedition what they do and it happens in 1897 And what they do is they manage to bring a three-man rescue team with 400 reindeer overland across 1,500 miles to somewhere called Point Barrow in Alaska. It's the northernmost point of all of the territory of the United States. It's unbelievably distant and far away. Um, And what they're doing there is that um, a a number of whaling ships have got trapped. Eight whaling ships have become trapped. And they're, they're stuck in this ice field off Point Barrow. The owners of the ships think that, that you know, they say, they're, look, there are 265 men here and they're going to starve during the winter. They actually write a letter to the President of the United States, William McKinley, at the time. And McKinley um, agrees to send out a relief expedition. Uh, it's quite interesting. Two interesting facts here. One is what the, what the Americans are doing up there anyway. It doesn't just send out any relief expedition. He sends out some people and a ship the bear which are very used to trading up there and what they're doing is they're trading between Alaska and Siberia which is itself really significant because what the Americans are doing in the late 19th century is they are introducing reindeer to Alaska so reindeer are not native to Alaska they are native to Siberia but not to Alaska and what they do it's part of um, a kind of broader imperial story of 
um, trying to change remote areas and the way of life of native inhabitants. It's happening a lot with the Native Americans throughout America, but it particularly happens with those who are living up in Alaska. And what the Americans do is they come across them, they think they're all starving. They write a very um, denigrating ways about the, the, the natives living in Alaska, and they decide to change their lives by introducing reindeer to Alaska to give them food, to give them uh, farming opportunities. Everything I was talking about in the first episode, it's clothing, it's food, it's farming, it's status symbols, it's wealth. Um, it, it, they, and they, they introduce thousands of reindeer. So the problem is, is they've got these whaling ships stuck off the north coast of Alaska. But at the same time, they've got an American presence who are introducing Siberian reindeer into Alaska. And what they do is they get their boat as far as they can north, but it's the middle of winter, right? Um, and then they decide to go overland and they walk over 1,500 miles with a herd of reindeer. Um, there's so much material surviving um, from this, which is why it's, it's so magical. But one of the things that does survive is the the official kind of um, go off and do this, help people letter from the Treasury Department um, written in Washington in November 1897. So remember, think about this, it's November, they're panicking, they realise they've got some nasty winter coming up and they've got a serious problem. Sir, the best information obtainable gives the assurance of truth to the reports that a fleet of eight whaling vessels are ice-bound in the Arctic Ocean, somewhere in the vicinity of Point Barrow, and that the 265 persons who were, at last accounts, on board these vessels are all in probability in dire distress. These conditions call for prompt and energetic action, looking to the relief of the imprisoned whalemen. It therefore has been determined to send an expedition to the rescue. Believing that your long experience in Arctic work, your familiarity with the region of Arctic Alaska from Point Barrow south and the coastline washed by the Bering Sea from which you but recently returned, your known ability and reputation as an able and competent officer all especially fit you for the trust you have been selected to command the relief expedition. Your ship, the Bear, will be officered by a competent body of men and manned by a crew of your own selection. The ship will be fully equipped, fitted and provisioned for the perilous work in view. For such, it must be under the most favourable conditions. First, that leaving Unalaska, you proceed north with your command to Cape Nome, passing between Nunivak and St Matthew's Island in sight of Nunivak. Thence north between St Lawrence Island and the coast of Alaska, carefully noting the extent and condition of the ice. If any is met keeping well over to the mainland, the object being to ascertain where the ice is or indications of it in Norton Sound. If the way is clear, you can by any means land the party on the north shore of Norton Sound. Between Cape Nome and Cape Prince of Wales, natives can be communicated with at either Cape Nome, Sledge Island, Point Rodney or Point Spencer. Should a landing be effected at any point named or near it, a quantity of provisions previously made ready should be landed and cached there, to be afterwards conveyed by the natives to the reindeer station at Port Clarence and left in the care of Mr Brevig. From the point of landing will begin the overland expedition from your command. It's basically a death sentence. That's what they've been given and they are told to go and do it and they absolutely do their best. It then tells them what to do when they get there, which is extraordinary. Upon arrival at Point Barrow, the officers of the expedition should assemble, if possible, the masters of the ships, Charles Brower and Thomas Gordon of Leeb's whaling station, Mr Marsh, Professor McIlhenny and Edward Aiken, late of Point Barrow Refuge Station, ascertaining the situation 
quantity of available provision and clothing. If the situation is found, as now anticipated, to be desperate, the officers must take charge in the name of the government and organise the community for mutual support and good order, apportioning the provisions on hand and slaughter as many reindeer as necessary, which it is hoped will have arrived, for food to make all hold out until August 1898, when you will arrive in the bear. Such reindeer as are left will be turned over to the Presbyterian mission at Point Barrow. Interesting there that there is a Presbyterian mission at Point Barrow. It's the most northerly point of Alaska. And they, they're out there um, still trying to spread the word of Christ. Well, what happens? Uh, they couldn't sail. There's too much ice. They go over land. It's 1,500 miles. They start off with sledges and huskies. They have to change them for Lapland freight sleds and reindeer. Uh, it makes it very difficult. They have to master the huskies. Then they have to change. They have to master, master the reindeer. And eventually they arrive. And the... The whalers on their ships are completely dumbfounded. Um, the, there's a, a terrible stories of extraordinary storms. Um, quote here from the log. In the middle of the day, we would see the sun, a red ball through the driving snow. But everything else on a level was a winding, blinding sheet. As we worked along, seeing nothing buffeted about by the fierce gusts, it seemed as if we would certainly pay dearly for our temerity. Anyway, they get it. They get there. This tiny group of men. With a huge herd of reindeer, we draw up alongside about 4pm and going on board announced ourselves and our mission. It was some time before the first astonishment and incredulousness could wear off. Some of the officers of the wrecked vessels whom we know were stunned and it was some time before they could realise that we were flesh and blood. They looked to the south to see if there was not a ship in sight and others wanted to know if we had come up in a balloon. The guy who ran this rescue operation was called David Jarvis. Absolutely extraordinary person. Um, and uh, his logs, his diaries are all there to be read. Um, unfortunately, uh, this, all this happens in 1897. In, in 1911, he shoots himself. Um, he finds life very difficult to cope with at the turn of the 20th century. And um, he left a, a really upsetting suicide note. It just said, tired and worn out. I'm not surprised, having having done all of that ten years before. I should think that pretty much broke broke the man. Um, there we are. It's actually a wonderful story. Reindeer saving the lives of people. Reindeer keeping them company on their one thousand five hundred mile trek. Um, it's a wonderful little uh, little anecdotes about the relationship between the men and the reindeer. Um, very moving stuff. They are James. Brilliant. What an exciting story for isn't it just for, for this time of year, Sam? A real adventure story there. Now I want to take us back into the museum world. Um, because what we what I talked about before was uh, a, a carved depiction of two swimming reindeer um, from uh, the Ice Age, 11,000 years BC. Um, but if you have a look at, in museums, one of my favourite museums is the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, which is a sort of amazing Victorian curiosity museum set up by all the anthropologists who were you know, touring round round the globe. Uh, in the 19th century, coming back, depositing all their things there. And they're all sort of higgledy-piggledy uh, all over the museum. It's a wonderful sort of cornucopia of a museum to go into. But if you trawl through the archives, you can find a range of artefacts that are associated with reindeer. And I just want to give you a sort of little insight into some of these. Check out 
the Pitt Rivers Museum website because you can search it for artefacts and you'll be able to discover all sorts of things. You'll also be able to discover uh, instructions for how to make a reindeer hat. Uh, so something for children to do. Uh, a little band uh, of sugar paper and then antlers on the side. Very, very easy to do. In fact, I may do it uh, this very afternoon with my daughters when they arrive home from school at midday. Um, but what I'm going to talk about is a number of artefacts. The first is an incredible map. It's a was found in the 19th century and it is on it's in black and it's on seal skin. And what it depicts is a large number of tiny little figures, uh, including men on sledges drawn by reindeer. It's got canoes on it it's depictions of harpooning whales and it's the most extraordinary uh example uh it's now in oxford in the museum and it was obtained from the chucky uh tribe uh by a crew of an american whaler in the late 1860s or 1870s now quite what obtained means whether it was taken whether it was traded but certainly it was it, it found its way to this American whaler crew and then into into Oxford. And the skin has been studied by, by scholars um, who consider it to be a calendar of the events of in one year on the, the Chucky Peninsula coast. Um, others see it as a sort of depicting scenes of everyday life uh, of this particular group. But what we can think about here is the way in which skin here is used as a sort of calendar a calendar to record the life of this people um, referring to their activities and their hunts over an entire year and what's interesting is the depiction of reindeer here so reindeer you know pulling the sledges so maybe this is an early early depiction of of father christmas there but absolutely extraordinary um there are other depictions of reindeer uh, in the museum there is a beautiful Siberian ivory model uh, showing reindeer um, it's reindeer harnessed to a sledge with people um, it's beautifully beautifully carved uh, there's a dog there as well there's a there are three three people two people sitting on the sleigh there are reins there are trees in the background and this um, was uh, bequeathed to the museum in 1884. It's made from walrus ivory uh, and it comes from Siberia in, in Russia uh, and it measures uh, about 470 millimetres in length. Check this out. It is a beautiful artistic depiction of reindeer. You know, centuries apart, millennia apart, um, from the carving that we had earlier on. Um, now, we've been talking also about things made out of reindeer uh, for for survival and the kinds of things that people would have used. We talked about them being used for, for meat, the skin being used. We talked about the antlers, the bones, everything being used. Now, one of the most extraordinary things that survives in the Pitt Rivers Museum is a pair of reindeer knickers, um, <laughs> which if you go on, it absolutely wonderful. Uh, and... These knickers are, it's almost imagine like a sort of an, an odd sort of nappy uh, with sort of um, 
with with sort of little legs, uh, little legs uh, there. And this would have been made out of young, soft reindeer skin and would be worn with leggings and thigh-high boots, something that would really keep you warm in this, you know, in these sort of temperatures. Because you think temperatures would drop to about 50 degrees below freezing. Uh, and these belong to these knickers belong to um, a particular individual, particular female member of the Evenki, um, also known as the Tungus people, uh, who occupied the large territories of uh, northeastern Siberia. And they date back to the early 20th century. Uh, they were collected in 1914 by a Polish anthropologist, Marie Antoinette. Uh, I will do my Zaplika. Um, who was in charge of an expedition to study the Evenki life and to collect artefacts for the Pitt Rivers Museum and also for the Pennsylvania University Museum. Uh, so that's how they, they got there. The other thing that we have is, um, is reindeer milk cheese uh, that survives from 1884. And it looks like sort of frozen cheese. It's in complete sort of solid form. Uh, and it must be preserved in a sort of wonderful, uh, wonderfully sort of temperature controlled uh, environment. So there we are. There are some bits and pieces from the Pitt Rivers Museum that artifacts either artistic representations of reindeer or things carved out of reindeer or um, objects artefacts that were made out of reindeer that had a very sort of practical use and that survived to us as historians today. Now I have one final thing. I don't know whether you have any more, Sam, but I have one final thing which is rather humorous, which is about the history of crackers for for Christmas. Now, crackers we all know are a Victorian uh, invention and they can be traced to one Tom Smith uh, as the inventor of crackers in 1847 and he developed them as a way, as a sort of device to tie up his sweets and he, he put a sort of some paper around them. Um, they would then get added, uh, he apparently hears a crackle of a log and so the, the crack uh, is added to it. Later on, they are um, the 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 motto is added. The joke is added in the in the nineteen thirties. Um, and what I wanted to end with, and this is all coming to a series of reindeer jokes, Sam. Reindeer jokes that I think will slay you. Um, okay, what do you call Santa's most impolite reindeer? <laughs> I don't Rude know Dolph. <laughs> what what street in France do reindeer live on? <laughs> Rue Dolph. <laughs> did, did Rudolph go to school? No, he was elf taught. Mm. What is Rudolph's favourite day of the year? Red Nose Day. Who laughed and called Rudolph names? Olive, the other reindeer. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, how much does it cost Santa to park his sleigh and reindeer? Nothing. It's on the house. <laughs> that is brilliant. That's terrible. Um, what, what's, what's a dinosaur's least favourite reindeer? Not Comet. Sure. Comet. Um, what do reindeer... I don't get that one at all. Uh, what the comet comet destroyed the dinosaurs ah with you the comet okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that's a clever historical one there um, what do reindeer say to their kids don't know I, I love you dearly what's a reindeer's favourite game I don't know stable tennis <laughs> <laughs> what, what how do you get, 
How oh, do you cool. get? How do you get into a reindeer's house? I don't know, James. Uh, ring the deer bell. <laughs> um, what does Santa call the reindeer with no idea, with no eyes? Gave it away yeah. there. No idea. Um, <laughs> what does Mrs. Claus say to Santa when she looked up at the sky? Looks like reindeer. Um, <laughs> what does Santa use reindeer milk? Why does Santa use reindeer milk in his coffee? He's on a non-dairy diet. Non-dairy diet. <laughs> well, there Dear we go. Dear me. Uh, oh, and one, one last one. Oh, God. What's, really? what's the difference between a knight and Santa's reindeer? The knight is slaying the dragon and the reindeer are dragon the sleigh. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awful. I think that's enough, Sam. I think so. I think so. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed our reindeer specials. Uh, do please follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. If you like maritime and naval history, check out my new podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter on at James Daybell. You can follow the pod on at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and we are on Facebook. So check us out there. Check out everything that we have been doing in recent years on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Yeah, we've got loads more stuff coming to you in the new year. Um, more micro-histories, more homeschooling episodes, and more lengthy discussions about unexpected subjects. We'll be back soon, guys. Bye-bye. Season's greetings, all. Ciao for now. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.